Well, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. We examine the threats to America, the America we know and love. There are some existential threats to the country, both from abroad, from our border, and even here at home. We try to cover all of these in a serious and thoughtful way. Joining me today is our good friend Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies. He will talk to us about the caravan, that caravan that's moving on our southern border and what we can do about it. Talk about a threat. It's a threat, but as Mark will explain, it's not just this caravan, it's the daily caravan that comes. Also, Brian Kennedy joins the show. He is the president of the American Strategy Group, of which I am a fellow. Brian has a depth of knowledge regarding the existential threats to America from abroad. We'll take a look at U.S. foreign policy under President Trump. Not so isolationist, it seems. Pretty strong, and in some ways interventionist. Let's take a close look at that. We'll also speak with Joel Farkas. You know Joel well. He's a director of the American Strategy Group. He has some additional thoughts to follow up on last week's discussion on global climate policies. He's got a fact report, which you will find stunning. So a few thoughts, uh, briefly, because we have uh, great guests and great conversations. We're just getting the news of these bomb scares, to bombs perhaps sent to CNN, to Barack Obama, to George Soros, to the Clintons. Eric Holder. Eric Holder. Mm-hmm. Don't know what's going on. That's all I can tell you. Don't know. A lot of people, conservatives, are saying this is a plot hatched by the liberals to make conservatives suspect, bad. I don't know. Possible? Sure, anything's possible. Let's wait and see. Let's see if we can find out. Too soon to draw conclusions on this. But, you know, it's a big country, and there could be, there very much could be some right-wing nut who decided to do this, or it could be a left-wing plot. It could be either one. It could be something in between. Let's wait and see. You got any opinions on this? Anything? No, just like you said, let's, let's wait and see what's going on. Timing here before the elections, but everybody's passions are getting heated, and this is part of what, you know, we're talking about in America now. This is part of it. Some sober discussion follows. Brian Kennedy talking about uh, the Trump foreign policy, which is very aggressive, much more aggressive and interventionist than people thought. And going after Russia hard and going after China real hard. We shall see what comes of that. But for those who say he's soft on Russia, that ain't the case. No, sir. Mark Krikorian made room for us, and he is the guy, the go-to guy on immigration. And it's it's a terrifying situation, I think. It raises the whole question of our sovereignty as a nation. And we asked Mark a direct question, and that's basically what we talk about and what you'll hear. What can the president do to stop this caravan? And he says a lot of interesting things. But don't be distracted just by that one picture of this long caravan, because we're talking about a slow-moving caravan crossing our border every day. That caravan's 7,000, but it's 500 people every day. So we got to get legislation on this. We got to get on the stick and we got to ask the Democrats, is there some limit to immigration? Is there some number? Is there some principle, you know, which governs who can come in and who can't? And let's remember that we don't want to vouchsafe, make appear innocent the people who are not, you know, MS-13 and not Middle East terrorists. I don't know if there are any. Because all the people who plan to come across are illegal. At least they're not citizens. They don't have any right to come. But once they step in and say, refugee status, I'm seeking asylum, uh-huh. asylum, they get stay and have a hearing, which means they stick around, but they can only stick around for a little while. And we don't have enough detention centers. So we say, okay, here's your date of your court hearing. And then they're gone. It's very frustrating. And it's a huge problem. 
uh, let's get some legislation on this and let's let's argue it out. Mark says something at the end of this interview, which is it's a 7080 issue with the American people. They don't like this. They don't like the sight of this huge crowd coming mm-hmm. in. They don't regard it as an invasion. They certainly regard it as an incursion, an unwanted one, an illegal one, and they're right about that. Anyway, a lot to chew on in this. We would love to hear your thoughts. Claude, how do people... Yeah, just send an email to uh, BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. They can also tweet you know, at uh, William J. Bennett or leave a comment on Facebook. Just search uh, Bill Bennett. Thanks, folks. And now... Listen up to uh, what we got coming down the pike here. Three very good discussions. Not so much because of me, but because of our well-chosen guests. I'll give myself credit for that. Yeah, no, right. Yeah, you should get some credit for that. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> Listen up. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now is Mark Krikorian. Mark is the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Uh, I uh, called you, uh, boy, just uh, yesterday, uh, this morning, I guess it was. Seems like yesterday. Lots going on. Uh, and um, said, can you talk to us about this caravan? You are in the process of writing an article. You sent me a draft very generously. And let's talk about it. Can Donald Trump, can this administration stop this caravan? And to paraphrase uh, the poet, uh, may we count the ways? Yeah, I mean, there are things the president can do. Um, Sending troops to the border isn't going to do anything, but there are steps he can take, but it's not necessarily going to stop it. I mean, there, there are things he can do, for instance, if a large number of people come to a port of entry and uh, want to apply for asylum, which they should have done in Mexico, we can just close the port of entry uh, for a while, you know, and uh, we can try to pressure Mexico to keep them from getting to the border in the first place. So there are a number of things the president can try, which may or may not be particularly effective. But the, the real issue here is that we're getting a slow motion caravan every day yeah. at the border of yeah. people coming and either bringing kids with them or saying the magic word of asylum. And the result is they're just let go into the United States, you know, with a court date or something, which for the most part they're going to ignore. And the president's hands to a significant degree are tied by the um, by legislation and by uh, limits on funding for detention beds. Because the key thing is that if you keep people in detention until their case is resolved, there's not a big incentive to come in because you're just going to languish in detention and then be sent home. Um, But because we don't have enough detention space, we end up doing essentially what amounts to catch and release. And once they're past the border, that was, you know, that was the goal. And we'll be hard pressed to ever find them again. Clarification. Catch and release is not required by law. You could catch and detain if you had the beds. If you had the beds, although there's a twist to that, that under a court ruling, which Congress can overrule but has chosen not to yet, minors can't be held more than 20 days in detention. And so if the minor is released, in other words, if a person of an adult brings a minor with him, the administration is then faced with the choice oh. of either splitting the family and remember how much of a ruckus that caused. Separation, yeah. Or... Right. Or just releasing the parents with the kids. And so, 
the word has gotten out to Central America that if you bring a kid with you, your kid, a kid you rented, whatever it is, if you bring some kid with you, that's your ticket into the U.S. Uh, you know, there was one illegal immigrant, the New York Times, a couple of weeks ago to a story. They talked to him and he just openly said it. I mean, this isn't some secret. They know this. And so um, obviously more detention space would help but until those rules about how we um, deal with minors, illegal immigrant minors are fixed. Even more detention space might not be the Underst- Understood. Even if you had the beds, if you still have this rule and you face either uh, releasing everybody or separating the separation of kids from parents, even though in right. some cases it's not going to be parents, it's going to be a kid they picked right. up along the way. Okay. All right. That's, that's, that's one. There's some talk about using the military. Can you put up a military presence? Well, let, let's step back. You and I talked briefly this morning about times we have shut down the border. Uh, re- review those briefly if you will, for the audience. Right. Um, And the president has threatened, you know, to shut down the border. And we've done something like that in the past where we shut down the ports of entry or, you know, slow walk them, effectively shut them down. President Nixon did it in 1969 when the um, Mexican government was uh, balking at cooperating with us on anti-drug enforcement. President Reagan did it in 1985 when a DEA agent was... uh, Kidnapped. He later turned out to have been tortured to death. It was a very traumatic thing to, to this day echoes in American law enforcement. Kiki but Camarena. Again, Mexican, Kiki Camarena, right? Yeah, Kiki yeah. Camarena. Yeah. And the um, Mexican authorities were not cooperating with us. Yes. In fact, it seems that, you know, some former police official is the one who kidnapped him. I mean, I don't know all the details, but it was the kind of thing, you know, if you've seen Sicario, you know, you would, uh, uh, it would not right. be surprising. And so my point is that President Reagan again used uh, essentially a shutdown of the poor. Of entry. Can I interrupt you um, a second? When, when you say ports of entry, is that effectively all the border crossings? Yeah, that's what that's the term of art for a legal border crossing, whether it's on the water or the air. I mean, an airport is a port of entry if there's international okay. flights. Okay. So, port of entry just means any place where there's an immigration inspector. But if you're talking about you know, Matamoros or Juarez or uh, all those places are. Yeah, exactly. All okay. of that. You know, it's from San Diego all the way over to the Texas part of the border. So he could um, decla- so, he could declare them yeah, all closed. Yeah, or even just pick some. In other words, if there's a thousand people in a caravan who show up at Juarez, uh, you know, in Juarez try to cross into El Paso, president has the authority to just close the El Paso port of entry and say, uh, you know, no, we're not processing anybody here. I mean, there are, there are tools he has, but those are all uh, you know, sort of short-term, proximate solutions, not really fixing the underlying problem, which, like I said, is loopholes in the law and, um, you know, inadequate capacity to respond to these kind of problems. Let's stay with the, that for a minute, though. It's short-term. How long could you close a port of entry? How long, in the examples you cited, were those ports uh-huh. of entry closed? Uh, I think he, he, under Nixon, they were closed for several weeks, I think. And uh, I think Reagan closed them for something like one week. Uh, okay. And see, the thing is, though, obviously that prevents Americans from going back and forth, too. Right. And our economy is much more integrated with Mexico's yep. now yep. than it was yep. even 30 yep. years ago. Yep. So you're going to have a lot more American businesses hollering. It's not just going to be, you know, tourists who want to go down and get cheap booze in uh, Tijuana. It's going to be manufacturers who are saying we need our car parts. All right. Any other short run things that could be done? Short term, I mean. Um, yeah, I know. Short term stuff. Uh, I mean, the president has threatened 
cutting off aid to these countries if yeah. they don't respond. I think that's kind of cutting off your nose to spite your face. I mean, the whole point of the aid to these countries is to, you know, limit the incentive to emigrate, yeah. to right. improve right. conditions there. So um, my concern really is we need to change the rules and this caravan uh, isn't so much presenting us with a different challenge. We're facing this problem every day. Right. But what the caravan does is make this, sort of force this issue into the news in a way that it's almost like you're jacking up the heat under the, you know, the pot of boiling water for the frog rather than heating it up slowly. Yeah, you're in the numbers. Uh, the draft you sent me talked about a you know a, a, a slow caravan of 500 people a day. This caravan yeah. is more than 14 days away. So by the time it gets there, uh, its numbers will have already been exceeded by you right. know, the 500 a day. Exactly. Oh. And you know, I mean, they're probably not all going to make it to our border because some of them will end up getting deported. Some of them will. Some of them will almost certainly apply for asylum in Mexico. Uh, some of them will just become illegal aliens in Mexico. But the previous uh, caravan, the one from this spring, fully a third of them who started ended up reaching California, which is 2,000 miles from the Guatemalan border. So, you know, if this is now 7,000, and I've seen estimates even higher than that, you could easily have two or 3,000 people from this caravan reaching the U.S. border if it's the same kind of proportion. And that's a whole heck of a lot of people all at once. I want to get to the underlying reasons and legislation and so on in a second. But any more persuasion with Mexico? We're supposed to have just made a new deal, better deal than NAFTA. I mean, they broke through. They're in Mexico. Can't the Mexicans stop them? Won't the Mexicans stop them? Can we persuade the Mexicans to stop them? We can. um, But, you know, they have to... uh uh, we have to make it worth their while because there's all kinds of illegal immigrants making their way through Mexico, not even just Latin Americans, Africans, yeah. you name it. And for the most part, Mexico just waves them through. Uh, the one thing they do try to make pretty sure of is they are really looking for anybody who's from a Muslim-majority country. Um, doesn't mean they stop all of them, but that's one thing that they take quite seriously, and there ain't no Miranda warnings in Mexico. So there's no worries, no concerns about profiling. So they're pretty aggressive in that respect because they know that that's something we really take seriously. Um, they have to be persuaded that even regular illegal aliens are something that we take seriously before they're really going to do what they can to stop this. In other words, we get really uh, mad if there's Middle Eastern uh, terrorists coming. I say, yeah. Right. Uh, see what uh, I mean? Does, yeah. Does that, give, does that give less credence, take credence away from the claim the president or vice president were making about you know Middle Eastern types in 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 the 7000 unlikely yeah, because I mean, they're screened by the Mexicans so carefully yeah i mean a screen might not be the right word but the Mexicans are on the lookout for people like that okay. very aggressively uh i mean the there were a bunch of bangladeshis apparently who were initially trying to tag along with this caravan and from what i uh, there was reporting i think the univision reporter is the one who identified that reported this and said you know they were they were sort of rounded up and taken away by the police separately just then they were targeted. So, so yeah, I think the president's talking about how there's, you know, Middle Eastern terrorists hiding in this caravan is not helping things. I mean, it, it muddies the issue. The Democrats will say that's not true and then uh, kind of declare victory, as it were, rhetorically on this issue. When, in fact, you know, it, this is it, there aren't it, it's pretty bad and needs to be dealt with whether there's any Middle Eastern terrorists in this caravan or not. Yeah. Just as a as a as a side note, MS-13 likely in this caravan? 
Yeah, well, that's a whole lot more likely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's yeah. almost it's almost certain that there's going to be some folks like that okay. in this caravan. How could there not be? I mean, okay. you'd be an incompetent gang if you didn't take advantage of this. But by focusing on that, uh, you kind of take away the stigma that should attach to everybody as being illegal. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You're sort of playing into the Democrats' hands yeah. Yeah. because the Democrat position is that illegal immigration is fine and all illegal immigrants who make it into the U.S. should be able to stay as long as they're not actually killing anybody. But, you know, that's not what immigration law is about. Immigration law is enforcing the rules that we have for immigration, even if you're Mother Teresa. Right. All right, let's go to the underlying and the legislation, because I have sinned. I've participated in talk shows on TV. You have, too, I think, right at the time. Back and forth, and the argument goes, well, you know, Republicans, you've got the White House, you've got the Senate, you got the House, pass your legislation. Yeah, well, that'd be nice if uh, there weren't a filibuster rule in the Senate. And I don't mean to let the Republicans off the hook. I mean, I, you know, there's there's plenty of blame to go around, but the core problem here is that the Democrats are unwilling to modify uh, a variety of rules that relate to asylum and to the treatment of minors. And for instance, um, there's there's sort of no point to going into the uh, specific uh, acronyms and abbreviations, but there's legislation that says a, 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 a an illegal alien who is a minor, who claims to be a minor, uh, who's not from Mexico or Canada, so not from a from a non-contiguous country, has to have a whole different treatment. Can't just be returned back to his own country the way a Mexican minor uh, could be. Well, what that means is we've got all these, we've got parents hiring smugglers to send kids to the U.S. or to bring kids to join them in the U.S. The parents are often here illegally. And um, they're released once they get here. They're released to their illegal immigrant relatives as sponsors. And then they have, because they make an asylum claim. And that asylum claim will then go on for a year or two. They may or may not show up for some of the hearings. And they're not returned. I mean, an, an infinitesimal percentage of these so-called unaccompanied minors have actually been sent home, even though this problem has been going on now really in a big way since 2014, and really it started before that. Democrats are unwilling to even talk about it. They're saying, no, they voted against any fixes to that legislation and um, you know, won't negotiate, won't compromise, nothing. Because even though they say that they're not for open borders, they're opposed basically to any measure that would actually control the border. So if you say you support the, uh, the, the, an end, but you oppose the means to that end, then you oppose the goal as well. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. No, ab- ab- absolutely. And when pressed, um, you know, and I, I think this is a, a good rhetorical device, but I think it's also true. People, uh, Republicans, conservatives will say to liberals, well, what is the number? You know, 8,000, 100,000, 100 million? And you don't get an answer. And the other thing, the related question yes. is if somebody comes in who is not authorized, who goes beyond whatever number you pick or whatever category, what are you willing to do to enforce those limits? Mm-hmm. Are you willing to deport people who are not murderers, not criminals, just regular people, but who came in beyond whatever limits and rules we imposed? And the Democrats have been open about this. Uh, Hillary Clinton during the campaign has said it. Nancy Pelosi has said it. They have said that no illegal immigrant who gets into the United States should ever be made to go home yeah. unless they commit violent crimes. And, you know, that means, therefore, unlimited immigration, pure and simple. 
Well, and my point is that that's where the discussion needs to be, in my opinion. That's what the president should be pressing them on, forcing them, basically outing them, uh, rather than talk about, well, there's you know Arab terrorists in the uh, caravan when you know there probably yeah, really aren't. Right. Two more questions, and then um, we'll let you go. And you're very kind to squeeze us in the schedule. I know you're on travel and, and doing and doing a lot of other things as well. I guess the obvious question is what What do you think will happen? Yeah, that's Vegas hard to say order? because the, the, first of all, you know, if there's the, whatever there are now, seven thousand, ten thousand, they're not all going to make it to our border. Um, some of them are going to end up leaking and sort of staying in Mexico. So the numbers isn't going to be that big once it gets to our border. This next point I'd make is that both the caravan organizers as well as the Mexican government have a real interest in making sure that these folks scatter to some degree and don't just show up all of them in El Paso, you know, all 5,000 people all at once in El Paso, because that is something that the government cannot ignore, that the Democrats are even going to have to, you know, say that they're against. So you're going to have smaller groups, still could be significant, hundreds of people at a time maybe, but it won't be thousands. And then, you know, I'm just not, I'm, I'm when I'm pessimistic, I just think they're going to end up applying for asylum and getting into the country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we heard the president saying this will not stand and all of that during the spring caravan. One third of those people ended up coming to the border and they all live in the United States now. Yeah. Now they have some kind of hearing date or what have you, all of which is phony. But the point is they got in, they got past the border and that's the whole point. So like I said, I, I hope the administration will use some imaginative means to stymie this caravan, but I fear that they're going to end up befuddled and they're going to end up in the country. We get a Democrat House, there's not much chance of legislation then, is there, to fix this? Yeah, no, zero chance. I mean, literally zero. Uh, at least with a Republican House, the House might pass some things. I mean, the House, oh, yeah, sure. even Paul Ryan, who's, you know, not an immigration hawk, really, um, has, you know, been willing to move this kind of measure, you know, yeah, these loophole yeah, yeah. filling, filling these gaps. Uh, is Nancy Pelosi, you think he'll do anything like that? Of course not. I mean, yeah. they're going to, they'll pass a bunch of, uh, amnesty legislation. None of it will end up reaching the president's desk because of the Senate, but they're not going to take any of these steps seriously. No. No way. I guess back to the beginning, uh, two more questions then. Um, president can't declare a state of emergency? He can. There's a, there's a capacity, there's a provision for declaring a uh, mass immigration emergency. It's the kind of thing that um, after the Mariel boat lift, for those of uh -huh. your uh, older readers who remember that back in 1980, one of the things that sunk Jimmy Carter's re-election campaign were these hundred plus thousand Cubans who came out all at once. Um, and so they have developed or had developed plans for dealing with a mass immigration emergency like that. So that's possible. Um, but, you know, that means they're going to be, you know, presumably have some kind of provision for, you know, a tent city to keep people, contain people near the border. That's all possible. Uh, I think something like that is, po is likely, but that's inside the United States. And then you've got, you know, consistent lawfare uh, by the um, open borders groups. Once those people are in the country, even if they're in some kind of mass detention facility. And, you know, the judiciary is basically part of the resistance, at least much of it. Yeah, is. yeah. What, if, if what, they're in California. Why does the tent city have to be inside the U.S.? Couldn't, on a state of emergency, you station people right at the entrance and say you're not coming in? We could. We could do that. Um, but the point is that the ports of entry, usually the inspector is, you know, 
30, 40, 50, 100 feet inside the border. Heck, even our fences are a foot or two inside the border because we need, you know, we needed the construction equipment on the other side. So that even if we do that, even if we have guys right there, their toes are right on where the border marker is. Then, and they say, you know, somebody says, I want asylum. Well, you know, sorry, uh, turn around. Well, then they plop themselves down in front of the port of entry and they have tent cities in Mexico. It becomes, I'm not saying that uh, that's, we shouldn't do it because of that. What I'm saying is this is not some easy thing. The administration can't just say we're going to turn this around. This is going to be an ongoing PR fight with the Democrats and their allies and the media essentially pushing for the admission of all of these people. Yeah. Where I, one of the great things that uh, you guys do at Center for Immigration Studies is uh, surveys. Where, where's the public on this? Well, I don't know if anybody's done polling on this, but this is one of those, you know, easily one of those 70, 80 percent issues. You know what I mean? I mean, even people who regular people, I don't mean Democrat elected officials, but even regular people who yeah. have a soft spot for immigration. Um, are you know are alarmed by this kind of thing? There are you know there are hundreds of millions of people who would move here if they had a chance, right? Uh, and so that's why the president and the Republicans have a powerful issue here, uh, be, and it's powerful precisely because it's so important. Which is one of the reasons I wish the president would stop focusing on the Muslim terrorists in yeah. the yeah. caravan because that's not the issue here. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. you know that may that weakens his argument. Just make the argument that look, most of these people are ordinary. Some are good, some are bad. They're just regular people. Uh, but the issue is they're trying to yeah. move, they're trying to force their way into our country, whether you like it or not. And this is basically a question of self-government. Do we govern ourselves or do other people get to tell us what to do? Yeah. That's kind of what it amounts to. And do we have uh, And that's a powerful argument. And do we have borders? Are we a sovereign country? I was, if you'll indulge me a minute, as you know, for my uh, for my errors, I was a philosophy major and did a PhD. And it occurred to me, putting together the Kavanaugh hearings, the some of the things that came out of that, what we're talking about here. And I, I was saying the other day, okay, there's a question now that the former Attorney General Eric Holder said, we now have two illegitimate justices on the Supreme Court, so maybe we don't have to listen to the decisions of the court. What? What? Rule of law. Second, yep. um, uh, during the Kavanaugh hearing, well, presumption of innocence, that's that's just in courts of law. It doesn't really apply generally. Well, it sure should apply generally. Sovereign country yeah, borders. I be, mean, we are talking about cultural norm. We are about the we are talking here about the most fundamental principles of, you know, established in this country, in this culture for this country. And them being questioned at a fundamental basis is do you believe in sovereignty? Do you believe in the rule of law? Do you believe in the presumption of innocence? Crazy, crazy times. Well, I mean, that's what this cultural revolution stuff is about. Yeah, it you is, know, isn't use it? The academic jargon, they want to problematize basic assumptions that were never questioned and that underlie the, you know, the, the, the functioning of our society. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I don't mean to get into a different argument and I don't do social issues, but. You know, if a guy puts on a dress and gets to say he's a woman, that's the same kind of thing. Yeah. It's challenging uh, fundamental principles of the social order. And that's what these guys, that's why this is so revolutionary, whether it's immigration or other areas. We're glad you're where you are. Thank you, Mark Krikorian. <laughs> Happy to do it, Bill. Thank no, you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Let's welcome Brian Kennedy to the show. Brian is president of the American Strategy Group. Again, I'm a fellow at the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Brian, uh, thanks so much, and welcome back to the podcast. 
Great to be with you, Bill. I wondered if you had thoughts about the caravan and what's going on, uh, this thing that is moving now through Mexico. Well, I thought it was uh, politically, it's designed to test the president, of course, and see whether he's serious about this. And I do believe he's serious. And I think it's a very bad idea, uh, uh, whoever started this caravan. But I found it interesting. The vice president yesterday suggested that they're not certain just yet, but that it's possible the Venezuelans have been funding the caravan. Everyone's wondering where did the money come from for all these people to transit north. And if the Venezuelans are in fact behind it, that means that Russian and Chinese statecraft are behind it as well, because Russia and China are intimate with what goes on in Venezuela, and they would, they the Venezuelans would not have been uh, financing such things. They whose people are starving. Uh, they wouldn't finance this unless it were part of some broader policy that the Russians and the Chinese approved of. So I thought that was very interesting yeah, by the right. vice president. We'll see. All right. Well, that gets us into our topic today, which is Trump foreign policy. Um, and let's ju- let's just th- let me just start with a sentence from this uh, essay. We're going to put a link up to it, Claude. Uh, Trump is no isolationist. The uh, author. Uh, Walter Russell Mead. While the world was transfixed by the drama over the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Trump administration last week doggedly pressed ahead with some of the most dramatic shifts in American foreign policy since the end of the Cold War. The argument he's making here is that, quote, President Trump's foreign policy is anything but isolationist. It is ambitious, interventionist, and global. He talks about China and Russia and the Middle East. Your comments, and then we'll do some specific countries. Yeah, I think uh, I thought it was a good piece by uh, by Walter Russell Mead. I thought it was um, pretty obvious Trump is not an isolationist. He has been an aggressive America first president and America first does not is not synonymous with isolationism. But a lot of people believe it is, right? I mean, a lot of people believe it is. And when they heard, I mean, starting at the beginning, when they heard America first, they heard close the doors, fortress America. We're not coming out. We don't care about what goes on in the world. Yes, that's what they that's what they thought. But of course, every one of Trump's policies has been designed to promote America as a commercial republic. So he's rebuilding the military. He's making sure we can do business around the world. He's striking better trade deals. He's doing everything, reaching out all around the world uh, to make America the commercial republic and uh, the most productive republic that we've had in a long, long time. And so I think a lot of people misheard when they heard America first. And I thought it was good for me to be uh, describing Trump as being aggressive and ambitious, which is exactly what Trump is doing. I want to start with, with Russia, and then I want to go to China, because I was just talking to, to Joel Farkas, your, your colleague, our mutual colleague and friend, and I was saying it was you who were most prescient on this, uh, on the whole question of you know Russian influence in the election, that the Russians wanted Trump. And you said, why would the Russians want somebody who's going to be much more confrontational with them, tougher? on them than Obama had been or Clinton, Hillary Clinton would be. Uh, Meade has a sentence in this essay, perhaps more surprising to some of its critics is the Trump administration's increasingly hard line against Russia. The same week that Trump announced the U.S. withdrawal from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, sending John Bolton over there, 
and citing Russian noncompliance, an American aircraft carrier visited the Russian Arctic for the first time in 30 years, and Wes Mitchell, the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, described a new era of U.S.-Russia competition in a blistering speech at the Atlantic uh, Council, in which he talked about uh, uh, using, among other things, Ukraine, Georgia, and even Belarus as a bulwark against Russian neo-imperialism. This is tough stuff. Very tough stuff. Um, you know, some of that latter dealing with some of those other, you know, countries near Russia, that that is uh, certainly aggressive. But the mere fact that Trump is building a new nuclear arsenal, new weapons in that arsenal, sending Bolton over there to get out of the treaty just so he could develop those weapons. And, you know, in, in conjunction with that, building a missile defense and building a space force, that is targeted directly at yeah. Russia. Yeah. And not in an aggressive way, but in a defensive way. How bold is that on the part of Trump? To, to, I mean, the space force alone, and, you know, the vice president gave a, a talk on that yesterday, just announcing a space force committing yourself to a space force and then carrying that out, that is designed to deny Russia and China the strategic high ground of space. Because Trump genuinely believes that absent America having that space force, we would be vulnerable to the Russians and the Chinese. Now, contrast that with Obama. Obama knew that the Russians and the Chinese were doing these things. And in return, he didn't step up to say such things or do such things. Trump has. And so just at, at the level of grand strategy, Trump has shown himself at least as strong as Reagan, if not more so. And yeah. so all praise to all praise to Trump for doing that. There's another thing, too, which is um, the Trump administration's uh, threats to penalize European companies that trade with Iran. And that was criticized and cited in this piece as well uh, by Putin uh, as a huge strategic uh, mistake born of a hubristic sense of American power. I mean, that that really irritated the Russians as well. But he's following his own sense of things. And this is uh, this is not just stay at home diplomacy for Pete's sakes. No, the, uh, the checking the power of Iran in the Middle East is an important thing. And our European allies are irritated with us for, mm-hmm. for reimposing sanctions on Iran. And, of course, Putin is irritated by that because the, the Germans, for instance, are, are buying his, his oil and natural gas and, and other things. Right, and right. So, yeah, it, it's, it's hitting Putin in the pocket, getting tough on Iran. But, but Trump is absolutely right to do so because Iran is still the leader sponsor of terrorism in the world, and Trump is not going to let that stand. Let's go to China. Mead says in this article, this uh, shift, uh, or maybe not shift, but this this move by by uh, Trump, understood as a shift by those who misunderstood him, means above all intensifying competition with China. In the two weeks since Vice President Pence's speech laying out the far-reaching U.S. strategy for containing Beijing, the administration hasn't let up. Trade wars escalated. The president has announced U.S. withdrawal from a postal service treaty from 1844 that gives China shippers unfair advantages. Interesting. Going all the way back to 1844, huh? And Secretary of State Impressive. Mike Pompeo traveled to Panama to warn that country's leaders against Chinese debt trap diplomacy. Tough on China. Well, China is uh, certainly our leading strategic competitor, if not outright enemy. China thinks of themselves as our enemy. Uh, Trump, I think I've read everything 
Trump has written on China over the last 25 years, and he has consistently seen China as an existential threat to the United States, both in terms of our economy, but also the, you know, the building of their military. They've been stealing our intellectual property. And if America does anything, it's produce intellectual property. Uh, and the numbers they're using on the theft of intellectual property over the last decade are three to five trillion dollars. Just an enormous amount yeah. of money. Yeah. And the president has been very serious about that. And so the combination of trade deals, intellectual property, and also there's this new subject. It's an old subject, but, but newly on stage, which is the fact that China defaulted on their sovereign debt back almost 80 years ago. China says they're the successor government and that they are the one true China. They go all around the world bullying people that they're the one true China, but they've, uh, it turns out, defaulted on their sovereign debt and not paid Americans who own that sovereign debt or people around the world who own that sovereign debt. And they think they just don't have to play by the rules. And the amount they owe Americans there is over a trillion dollars. These are these are big sums of money. And China simply thinks they can get away with this. And the Trump administration, whether it's any of these things, is going to defend America and America's position. And he wants China to play by the rules. And so, you know, two years into the Trump administration, I think everyone is realizing that there's a new sheriff in town. He means business and he means to put the interests of America first. And that's not a complicated policy, but one that we have rarely seen in the past 20 years. Say a little bit more about this. You and I have had the benefit of talking about this before, uh, this sovereign debt, but say a little bit, what, what do you mean Americans uh, are owed this? Which Americans? Who Who and why? Yeah, there's, there's about 20,000 American families. I, I've been looking at this issue now for almost a decade, and there's 20,000 American families who own these bonds that China issued uh, in the last century. And they did it because China was an ally and a friend, uh, but then China defaulted on their debt in, back in 1938, and they never thought they had to repay that loan. They repaid the British back in 1987 because the British told them they had to if they wanted access to British capital markets. But when Americans have gone to the Chinese to ask for repayment, the Chinese simply say that it's not their obligation. It was the obligation of a previous regime. The heart of it is the fact that China doesn't seem to think it has to play by rules. And in this, they're stiffing everyday Americans. This isn't Wall Street. These aren't hedge funds. Uh -huh. These are just 20,000 everyday American families from all over the country whose, you know, fathers and grandfathers bought these bonds um, way back when. To help the Chinese, so, right? to help the, and to help the, the free yeah, Chinese. To help, yeah, yeah, to help the Chinese overthrow the, uh, the emperor and imperial rule. And so it, it's a very odd thing that... America hasn't stood up for its citizens before now. But I think Trump, who is, by all accounts, taking a, a look at this the same way he's looking at intellectual property and other Chinese financial you know, wrongdoings, is going to take a look at that that as well. You guys, it's just part of Trump's over, overall strategy. I was going to ask you, that, is this issue you've just raised about the debt, you think it's on the president's radar screen? Oh, I think, it, I think it has to be. I was quoted in an article in Newsmax this week about it. I think it has to be on the president's radar screen because President Trump has been vigilant in making sure 
sure that other nations, whether it's Mexico or Canada or Europe, play by, you know, what he called reciprocal reciprocal dealings. You know, what's good for one is good for the other. Americans pay their sovereign debt, our you know, U.S. Treasury bonds that, that the Chinese own. We pay on those. We're never going to default on those. And Trump, Trump looks at that and thinks, well, why shouldn't the Chinese pay us? China puts tariffs on us. We'll put tariffs on them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, for, for this uh, student who took one course in economics, got a D, it didn't dig anymore. So make it simple. But if I understand this, you know, China, in effect, says, look, you guys owe us because we've lent you so much money. You guys owe us a couple trillion, three trillion dollars, whatever it is. You would know the number better than I. But what we're saying is, wait a minute, you know, you owe us more than a trillion dollars because of these bonds. Yes, exactly. And remember, there was a, a big, a big thing about the Argentine debt default a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. And and look, nations go, nations go to global capital markets to borrow money. You know, the United States has treasury bonds. People come and buy them. People buy euro bonds. They buy bonds all over the world. China today is talking about coming to Wall Street to issue brand new sovereign bonds and bonds of their state-owned enterprises. Now they're going to they're going to try to do that over the next, you know, 5 years and the number that people are using analysts, Wall Street analysts are using are anywhere from 1 to 5 trillion dollars of new sovereign debt. So they're going to issue new sovereign debt, or at least try to, without having paid Paid. off their old sovereign debt. Yeah. Yeah. And so people people who are looking at these things wonder, does China really think they can get away with everything? They certainly try to, but I think they're going to be held to account. They're going to be held to higher standards. And if China really wants to be the great nation that it aspires to be, and, you know, they have a lot to be proud of in what they've achieved there in China. But until they play by the same rules as everybody else, they will be a second class kind of country in that they don't think that the rules that govern global affairs govern them. Yeah, it's interesting. Conversations I've had on another front actually sort of related to what we're talking about. My book and my sale of my book in China, very small beer uh, compared to what you're talking about. But one thing that's come clear to me and in my visit to China, and yeah, I admire things they've done, Chinese education, other stuff, but they not only want more power, they're very interested in having the respect of the world too, right? And a first-rate citizen among citizen nations. And to gain that respect, they got to pay their debt. They should pay their debts, they, and they should want to pay their debts, right? It's not like they're poor. Absolutely, they have they have today over three trillion of U.S. reserves, with over a trillion in uh, U.S. Treasury bonds. They have plenty of money to pay this, and so why don't they? Okay. So if they are if they are going to be a great nation, they have to play by the rules, and it will take a president like Donald Trump to actually make that so. Very good. I, you know, you know, you know I, I'm aware of this from my conversations and work with you, but I think a lot of our audience isn't. This is very, uh, I'm sure this can be very interesting. I'm sure we're going to hear from a lot of people. In the few minutes we have left, Brian, uh, any summary thoughts about Trump foreign policy? Hook to one last question. Uh, one of the criticisms I keep hearing from the foreign policy establishment is, along with others, um, is that Trump doesn't pay enough attention to allies. If you're going to take on Russia, you take on China, you should make sure your allies are with you. And they contrast him unfavorably with George uh, W. Bush and others who, you know, gathered up all the nations before going into Iraq or other things. Uh, and this is a criticism of Trump. Do we need allies? These are big 
powerful countries, particularly in the case of China. Do we need allies like Germany and France and Great Britain? And should we be taking greater care to bring them along with us on these ventures? Uh, Well, we certainly need allies. Uh, And I think Trump's method of diplomacy so far about talking tough and acting tough has actually done more to bring people together than the diplomacy of reaching out to everybody and and you know, a la a la George Bush. Remember, I mean, I think this is what Trump realizes: those European allies of ours do all sorts of things that are not in our interest. The Germans today are selling all sorts of goods to yeah. the Iranians. Yeah. The Iranians who helped Osama bin Laden and the Iranians who sponsored terrorism in Iraq and throughout the rest of the world. Now, why would our German or Italian or British allies be trading with a country that is the sworn enemy of the United States? Well, they do that because they're making money and it's in their interest and they put their interest before the United States. So when Trump talks tough to them, he's talking tough for a reason, that those those allies of ours don't always act like allies. Got it. So he, ta- he, he, ta- he takes it more seriously and takes our defense more seriously and the defense of the West more seriously, certainly, than our allies do. I just, to my, to my last thought, I just wish this, uh, these efforts on his part, which seem to be very strong and very praiseworthy, wish they were more part of our national conversation here on the eve of elections. You know, we really do have an active and engaged president administration on this. And that's all to the good, it seems to me. Yeah, I think it's great. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Great, great to be with you yes, today. Yes, sir. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joel Farkas joins us now. He's director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow at the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel, we were talking last week about uh, global warming, uh, people blaming the United States, this report, which you'll remind us about in a second. And uh, and you had an update. Give the audience a little context what we were talking about and uh, what this important new finding is. Just recently, a couple of weeks ago, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it's a U.N. commission that came out with a report that basically said if the world doesn't do something immediately, instantaneously, within the next seven years or so, the climate and the warming will be kind of an irretrievable, irrevocable crisis. And during the same time, a couple of economists won the Nobel Prize couple weeks ago, basically on climate as well. So there's a lot of uh, worldwide action on reporting on the, the, the crisis of, of climate. And interestingly, during that same period of time, uh, the, the reports came out and the Nobel Prizes were issued for people who, who are warning the world. The United States has been one of the largest, if not the largest, reducer of CO2 emissions in the world. So while the United States in this report and with all the environmental groups, uh, Sierra Club, EcoWatch, Amazon Watch, everyone who's watching, the United States, and in particular for President Trump, who pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords is being criticized for lack of leadership and lack of concern and lack of interest. What we have found is the United States has been the leader in reducing CO2 emissions. Let's repeat that last sentence, please, if you don't mind. The United States is the leader in the reduction of CO2 emissions, while it's also being criticized for failing to care or have concern for climate. 
You uh, sent me an article, another headline, U.S. CO2 emissions plummet under Trump while the rest of the world emits more. U.S. greenhouse gas emissions fell 2.7% from 2016 levels, according to the EPA. Emissions on a per capita basis at a 67-year low last year. Well, that sounds like something Trump ought to include in his stump speeches, right? Lowest emissions ever. Ever, ever. ever. <laughs> and supporters are touting EPA's data as proof of Trump's agenda's working. Uh, EPA's new data on the U.S. comes as news that globally, greenhouse gas emissions are set to rise to historic highs by the end of the year, despite nearly 200 countries signing the Paris Climate Accord. So here's the irony. We are out of the Paris Accords and are having some of the lowest emissions we've had in a very long time. These other guys are in and are adding to the admissions. And to add to that, the United States is also, their economy is growing, and most of the climate uh, justice warriors, they say really two things. In order to uh, retard CO2 emissions, you have to reduce your growth, and you have to reduce the amount of emissions that people, humans, humans are the ones, they say, who cause all CO2 emissions. You have to reduce what they cause. And in some cases, you have to reduce the amount of people. I mean, if humans are causing it, they, the, the, the natural progression of that argument is fewer humans will cause less. So while the United States has a growing population and while the United States has a growing economy, they have a reduction of not only just CO2 emissions, but major pollutants the EPA looks at from, from 1970 to 2017. The, 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 the six major pollutants EPA monitors plunged by 73%. Uh, and these are carbon monoxide, lead, nitrogen oxide, ozone, particle pollutants, all kinds of things. What that proves is the United States, through technological advances, can continue to improve our efforts on pollution, you know, without just stopping, instantaneously ceasing production of fossil fuels or ceasing consumption of fossil fuels. You don't need to do that in order to make progress. And that's really the argument. That's the, the argument between environmentalists and anyone else who, uh, who who wants to look at it in a more reasoned, rational way. I want to just repeat, be sure I got it right, and for emphasis, we are criticized by this report, and the president's criticized in terms of global warming and emissions. However, our emissions are lower now having left the Paris Accords than countries who stayed in who are emitting more. A. B. Uh, it's an article of faith among uh, some people that if you have a growing economy, you're going to have worse emissions, worse pollution. Not true in our case. And third is if you have a growing population, you're going to have more pollution. Also not true in our case. We have more people. We have a growing economy. We're out of the Paris Accords and our emissions are lower Historic at a historic low. Yes. All three are measurable and verifiable facts. They're not hyperbole. They're true. They're factual. And they're measurable. We look forward to hearing this on the NBC and CNN Evening News. I think um, MSNBC, I think, is leading with this story, yeah. <laughs> um, along with CBS, ABC, and the one. Yeah, yeah. yeah going It's amazing. It's actually, it's interesting. <laughs> well, the way, well, there's got to be something. Is, is it liquefied natural gas substituting for coal? Is that is that part of the story? It's a big, 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 big part of the story. Um, taking because most of the world. Most of the world uh, has been using coal as their source, primary source of electric uh, utility generation. And the replacement of gas for coal is a very significant uh, cause of this. There are new technologies. 
you know, there are more ways of when you have more um, foliage and trees and the like that are being that are growing around the world, which we can also measure. They capture carbon, but the biggest reason is just what you said. But there's many reasons. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned about whether or not we're going to hear from some of the other news outlets. This, you know, this this great success. One of the headlines I actually saw was, will U.S. success in cutting greenhouse gases kill the Paris climate deal? Like, that's the issue. Um, wow. The Paris climate deal, it's really simply put nonsense because the world, not the United States, the world is emitting more CO2 emissions. Where is it coming from? It's coming from Southeast Asia, uh, China and India in particular. Yeah. And the Paris climate accords... Do not put any restriction. It put no restriction on either of those two countries or any other countries in that region. They can indiscriminately continue to increase their emissions uh, without any repercussions. So the Paris Climate Accords in and of themselves don't do anything if your goal is CO2 emissions. It's, it's a propaganda piece. It's, it's not anything that achieves an outcome. Joel, thank you for this update. And uh, it's, it's extraordinary. It's breathtaking. It's such a surprise. I'm sure lots of the major media are going to have cognitive dissonance over this. You know, it just isn't going to be able to compute. <laughs> But nothing like the facts. What is, I think it's Thomas Huxley who said, used the phrase, the tragedy of a fact killing a theory, you know? <laughs> I, I had never heard that, yeah. but that's uh, it's beautifully put. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate the update. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Okay, that does it for today's show. Boy, there's a lot going on. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. Now, I'm going to ask Claude to help me with this part. I always do. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. Right. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. Here's how you do that. You go to... Well, you don't go to anything, but when you're sending oh. an email, you just send the email to uh, BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. You don't go to anything. No, you no. You just send to something. Exactly. You send your email. <laughs> exactly. I just need to be clear on this. You just send your email uh-huh. to BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Share the podcast with your family and friends. And anyone else you like. Yeah, everyone else. Everyone else that you know. You know what is interesting? So I was playing in a tournament, in a charity golf tournament uh, a few days ago at Woodmore Country Club. And a gentleman comes up to me. uh, He knows me. And he says, hey, uh, I've listened to those Coke conversations that Dr. Bennett's been having with, you know, Mr. Coke. And uh, and he was particularly interested in the the, uh, school stuff that's going on uh, with them. He also mentioned the AI conversation with with, uh, Mr. Gelernte. Really? Yes. He said it's, it's incredible. Great. A lot of people listening. There are a lot of people listening. Absolutely. I am just confident of that. Thank you, Claude. All right. That's our show. Tune in next week. We're going to talk a lot about elections coming up uh, with, we think, the most authoritative person around. You'll hear who that is next week. Join us for the Bill Bennett Podcast, The Bill Bennett Show. 